0: Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your vast love. We thank you for your vast word. And as we spend time in it this morning, we pray that you would help our hearts and our minds to be attuned to your spirit, to be attuned to you, to remember your word may be hidden in our heart this morning. God, we love you, and we praise you. It's your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Stories of humble beginnings the underdogs defeating the odds, how somebody's started out as nobodies often catch our attention. Whether we see ourselves in the story or at least hope our future may be similar, hearing about these humble beginnings with desperate efforts brings us hope. Take, for instance, Apple, a company that has just now surpassed and sustained a $3 trillion market cap this summer, started with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in their parents' garage. What's now worth trillions had the humble beginnings of two college dropouts. Even our own country had humble and desperate beginnings. All those who fought for freedom knew what was at stake. And what started as 13 colonies and around 2 million people is now 50 states and 330 million people now one of the most influential and impactful countries in the world, still had humble beginnings. Or take LeBron James, being from Akron myself, right? His phrase was always, just a kid from Akron. It wasn't some big city with big names, right? His phrase reminded everyone that through his hard work and his opportunities, he came, became to what he is now the current leading scorer of all NBA history. Through all the championships and records set with the various teams, and whether or not you think he's the real GOAT, his motto has always been a reminder of his humble beginnings. Humble beginnings inspire courage and self-determination. We think we too can take life by the horns and force the outcome that we hope for. But what about humiliating beginnings? How often do we actually have humiliating beginnings instead of humble ones? Humble beginnings put us in a position to brag about our own abilities, whereas humiliating ones show our true helplessness. In our story today, we don't see honest, humble beginnings. We see a rather disappointing and disturbing one. If this story hadn't been in the Bible, I don't know why anyone would want to remember it. I don't know why anyone would want to ask to preach about it either, but it is in our Bible, and it is something that we can learn from. It may not be the story we want, but it is the story that God gives us and the story that God works through nonetheless. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 38 if you aren't there already. Last week, Pastor Kyle, as Nick reminded us, started in Genesis 37. The beginning story of Joseph. Right after Joseph gets going, then we get this weird chapter, this weird story. We get interrupted as he's sold off to Egypt. And Pastor Carl reminded us of three questions that were rather helpful to help understand any type of narrative. What is the structure of the text, right? What's, what's the organization? What is the surrounding, right? What's happening before and after? And then what is the significance? Now, I don't know if you've read this story before, but right after we read it, you might be wondering, what in the world is the significance of this text? The beginning story of Judah actually reverberates into the very story of our own lives. It's a story of beginnings, but not in the courage, life-building, life-motivating story we may want. And so we're going to read through the whole thing. So follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen, and then we're gonna tackle and break apart each section. So keep your Bible open, and maybe your mind too, as we're in for a wild ride. So join me at Genesis 38, starting in verse one. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shuah. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty a brother-in-law should to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would was waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shalem, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah, his sheep, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was old, was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father in law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And then the next chapter, we see Joseph again, down in Egypt, (laughs) What a story, right? How can this have any significance? It's kind of like uh, when you're watching TV or you're on YouTube and an ad pops up having nothing related to the movie or the show you're watching. It's kind of what it feels like, right? We're going along this story of Joseph and wait, what? Judah? Huh? Oh, okay, right? What is the significance of this interesting story? We're going to break it down. And first, let's start with the births by the Canaanite in verses 1 through 5. So right out the gate, we see Judah leaving his family, right? Which is first a no-go, right? Not a good thing. And then on top of that, he marries a Canaanite. Another no-no, especially in the audience, original readers saying, hey, wait, he's leaving his family and he's marrying a Canaanite? That's not a good thing. Two things I want to remind us of to keep in perspective as we run through this story. First is the importance of the family line. It's actually how Genesis is organized and is what the audience is paying attention to and anticipating. The author of Genesis gives us these these links, these phrase links. These are the generations of. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Isaac, Esau, all the way to Jacob. Who you came from and where your line was going was important. That's the first thing. Second is the location in the family line. It's helpful to know where we are at in this family line and what's going forward, what line is moving forward. So we had Father Abraham that we've talked about, right? He had Isaac, the promised child, right? And then Isaac had the twins, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob had 12 sons through four different wives, and so we start with Joseph's stories we did last week. We see those brothers did not get along. Judah is the fourth child of Leah, Jacob's first wife. Remember he was tricked by Laban into marrying the older daughter, even though he was in love with Rachel, the younger daughter. And as we've seen through all these stories, playing favorites doesn't usually pan out, right? And this story of Judah takes place actually for the next couple of decades paralleling Joseph's story that we see through the rest of Genesis. So that's where we're at in these generations. These are the generations of Jacob. We've got one sold off into slavery in Egypt because his brothers hate him. And then we got this other weird story of prostitution and incest. These generations of Jacob aren't looking so hot. What are we to make of this line of Judah? In our next section, the family line takes a turn for the worst. In 6 through 11, we see the hidden wickedness of Judah's offspring. And I know you're just dying to hear this part again, so let's go ahead and look at it to remind ourselves of the story. And Judah took a wife of Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. It's a lot to keep track of here, right? First, Tamar is given to Ur in marriage. Now, I don't have flannel graphs like Pastor Kyle did last year or last week, but we've got this, right? So we don't even know the name of Judah's wife in this story. We hear her elsewhere, but not here in this story. But Tamar is given to Ur first, but then he dies. So then She's given over to Onan, but then he dies. And so she's promised to Shelah, the last and final son. Okay? Keeping track, right? There's one left. She's given and promised to the last one, right? Because he isn't old enough. And honestly, Judah's starting to catch on to the pattern, right? This pattern actually of passing through the different uh, brothers is actually based on a, a culture custom that later becomes law in Deuteronomy, right? This is before the time of God's law to his people. It's known as leveret marriage. If a woman's husband dies without offspring, then it was the duty of his brother to bear a child for her to continue his brother's dead line, right? Remember, the family line is important, and that's what's at stake here. We don't know why the first son died, er, but we do know why Onan did, right? Onan wanted his brother's line to die off, but instead he dies off. Which we can kinda understand a little bit, right? It's it's kinda like you doing all the chores, and your brother or your sister gets the allowance for it, or you do all the work on a work project, but then someone else slaps their name on it and gets credit, right? It's not ideal, this leveret marriage situation, but it was to protect the family line, to provide for the widow. But Tamar still isn't provided for here. She becomes actually an outcast. And as we see in our story, she becomes forgotten because of the wickedness of the brothers and the poor family leadership, really, of Judah. She gets sent back to her father's house, but now is actually rendered useless because her father can't marry her off to somebody else. She's literally an outcast, widowed and waiting. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I see characters like this in in a story, I can't help but think of my own life. When have you felt forgotten, like an outcast, maybe even by your own family, maybe even by God, you felt that way. But regardless of how society, how our family, or even supposed religious people may treat us, know that God as sovereign doesn't forget people. That's not part of his sovereignty. He doesn't leave us in our outcastness, in our, in our sin, but he calls us to a new life and by a new name. It may take time to see him move. It may take boldness on our part But no one is too far, no one too forgotten, no one too faithless for God to save. And as we see in our story, God has more in mind for Tamar. In our next section, 12 through 23, we see Judah's sin and mistake. Let's go ahead and look at it again together. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend, Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Aname, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he turned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, and we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Judah's heading back to his friend, right, that we hear about at the beginning of this story. Sheep shearing time was payday. So we've got an increased income a lost wife, isolation from family, the ultimate downgrade of his life, which makes the pers- perfect recipe for a sinful mistake. What seems to be his desire for satisfaction, interestingly, becomes the redemption of his future. But at this point in the story, Judah hasn't fulfilled his promise to Tamar to give Shiloh, his son, to her which seems a little bit intentional, right? He ca- caught on to the pattern, right? He doesn't want his own, his last son, his only family line to die off, right? He's seeing a pattern here. Maybe it's Tamar's problem. I don't, I don't know, right? He catches on to the pattern. He's like, you know what? Mm, m- m- maybe not. He's not that stupid, right? Tamar seemed to know what would get his attention, which is fascinating. The region she was in, the attire, how she situates herself on the road, all seemed to be her attempts to be appearing like a prostitute. She knew he was coming. and Maybe it's sad that she knew what would draw him in. Uh, But at the very least, we have another story of deception in the house of Jacob. Remember, that's what his name means. Deception still hasn't left the house of the deceiver. We have Jacob deceiving Esau and his father, right, about the birthright. And Laban deceiving Jacob for the marriage of his daughters. Jacob ends up deceiving Laban back. Jacob's sons deceive him about Joseph being dead. And finally here, Tamar deceives Judah. He falls into her deception, but actually he was, even though he didn't know, he was already falling into sin. She asks him, what will you give me? She knows it's supposed to be his son. He's supposed to give her his son, but he instead misses it, and doesn't even realize what's going on and just chooses to satisfy his sinful desires. He gives her whatever it takes. He gives her his signet, cord, and staff. These are actually his valuables. So the signet or seal was a stamp engraved uniquely for Judah, kind of like a signature used for all types of transactions. The cord likely refers to what was holding the seal, usually worn around the neck. And then the staff was potentially a walking stick, but at least symboled his individual and corporate identity. Right? So by giving these to Tamar, it was unmistakable. Yeah, that's, that's Judah, that's his family, that's his line, right? A modern-day equivalent would be like a driver's license. Okay? So by her having these, it was pretty certain. What will you give me? What pledge? What pledge? Whatever it takes. Here, my identity, my authority, sure, yeah. Whatever it takes. You guys ever been there? Trapped in addiction? Or just at the end of yourself? I don't care what it costs, I just want to do this. Friend, if that's you this morning, know that you don't have to be stuck in your sin any longer that Christ sets us free we no longer become slaves to our sin but slaves to righteousness we are now under God's authority in Christ he gives us a new name and a new identity no longer calling us that life of sin but to follow him God has more in mind for you he has more in mind for Judah just as he has more in mind for Tamar in our next section, Genesis thirty-eight twenty-four through 26, we see the revealed wickedness of Judah. Let's read it together. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immortal. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. The consequences of his sin were not far behind. That's the same thing with our sin too, right? We don't willingly choose the outcome of our sin. Sometimes we think we can force it, we can hide it, we can bury it long enough, but deep down, we know they will be revealed. The sin here of Judah is dripping with hypocrisy. What a reveal, right? How dare she be pregnant by prostitution? Which, you know, hey, let her be burned. Yeah, that's the right response for a shameful sin like that, right? How dare she? But he was the very one that gave up his ver- his valuables, his identity for prostitution, And more specifically, this prostituted act as well. Talk about a reveal. And yet he tries to keep it hidden, right, with another goat. He's like, hey, the goat worked to hide Joseph's death, right? We just used the same goat blood. And yeah, he's dead. Cool, we'll cover that sin up too. And yeah, you know, I'll cover this sin up with another goat. But no. How dare she? No, how dare you? What a reveal. It takes the supposed righteous acts of Tamar, to shock Judah to his senses. What makes his end result different from his son's is the turn we see in Judah here in this story. The next time we see him in the book of Genesis, he's different. You don't have to turn there if you want, you can, but it's Genesis 44, right? The brothers finally convince Jacob to go back to Egypt with Benjamin, his last favorite son. But the only reason he allows them to go is it because of the sacrifice of Judah. Judah explains this to Joseph when they arrive back. Verse 32 through 34 is what we're going to look at real fast. Judah says this to Joseph, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The same guy, by the way, in Genesis 37 who was willing and actually offered, hey, let's get a profit off of Joseph and sell him is the same guy that offers himself. He really does it at two levels, right? He offers to take the blame, To his father, he says, Father, please blame me instead. But then to Joseph, he says, no, take me as the punishment, as the, 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 please, I'll take it. I'm, I'm the sacrifice here. That's a different Judah. This begs the question for us, how do you respond when your sin is revealed? All our sin hidden to other people or not, is actually revealed before a holy God. Even the sin of the brothers was seen by God, right? And he responded with putting them to death. Revealed sin should lead us to repentance. If we find ourselves led to excuses, to downplaying or further burying, we do the same judgment as the other son's. Because the thing is, we can't be forgiven from our sin if we first don't repent of our sin. We must first recognize our sin for what it is. As much as we try to hide and forget it, we must first eventually address it and confess it. Whether you found your story to be more like Tamar, Judah, or your own concoction of humiliating beginnings we find the God at work here is the same God at work in our own lives. A young man from an impoverished background dreamed of a better life for himself and his family than the hard scrabble existence he had growing up. He saved all he could and went deeply into debt to launch a grocery store startup in a town called New Salem. His partner had an alcohol problem, and he ended up so far in the hole that he referred to his financial obligations as the national debt. He gave up on ever being a successful businessman, and it took him more than a decade to pay off his failed dream. He went to law and then politics, and in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. He was an avid Shakespeare fan, and his favorite quote came from the Hamlet. There is a divinity that shapes our ends. rough-hew them as we may. He came to believe this deeply about his own life, but also about the nation that he led. His entire second inaugural address is an amazingly profound reflection on how God was at work, even in the Civil War, in ways more mysterious and profound than any human being could fathom. Although his life had a humiliating beginning and even a disappointing end, he's still recognizing the sovereignty and grace of God in his life. What a loss it would have been not just to him, but the whole nation, if the doors of that little grocery he had started in New Salem hadn't closed. Our lives may not turn out as successes in the world's eyes around us. They might not be exactly how we want them to be running right now, but we can trust in the God who is orchestrating it all. In the end of our story, we can start to see how God is orchestrating the lives of Judah and Tamar. Go ahead and look at it with me. In Genesis thirty-eight twenty-seven through 30, we see the births by Tamar. When the word of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tried a scarlet, tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself! Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So we start our story with births, and we end with births. And it kind of seems like a weird, abrupt ending. But it actually ties into the overarching plan and story that God is weaving. This is where it starts to make sense. Why this weird, crazy story of prostitution and and incest? What's the significance? So here, this birth of twins should remind us of another, right? That The younger actually breached what was due to the older, his father, right? Jacob and Esau. And really, we see this pattern all the way back through Genesis 4 even, right? With Cain and Abel. And we don't have time to trace everything, but again and again, we see God choosing and approving the younger and the weaker to bring about his divine purposes, right? Abel over Cain and even Seth over Cain, right? Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and in this story we see a unique birth, a birth reversal for Perez, which his name maybe you have a mark there on your Bible, but his name literally means breach. So although Zerah reached out his hand first, Perez comes out first, breaching the normal order, representing the reversal of these family lines. Okay, so remember the family line is important. But all along, the family line isn't the chosen line because of any earned merit. God's blessing is extended to those who have no other claim to it. They all receive what they do not deserve. And Judah and Tamar receive what they do not deserve. What are they receiving? check it out with me all right here we go turn to genesis 49 8 through 10 right we get to the end of the genesis story we see joseph's faithfulness as the key to preserving jacob's family and jacob is going through blessing all these different sons and we would expect joseph the faithful one to be the chosen line but it's not It's none other than the one with the humiliating beginning. We're just going to read 8 verses 8 and 10. Here's what he says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter is not going to depart from Judah. He is the chosen line. It's not the righteous acts of all these patriarchs that earn them this chosen, blessed status. It's actually the, the righteous acts of Tamar that comes about with these births, and they receive God's grace the inclusion of being in this chosen line. So why is this significant? What's the purpose? Why all this stuff? God's sovereign grace is uniquely revealed in the line of Judah. When we get to the end of Genesis, we'd think it's Joseph. He's the faithful one, right? Shouldn't he be blessed because of it? It's not the humble beginnings of a fighter that God uses It's the humiliating story of a sinner. God uses even those of us who are unfaithful. And that's all of our stories. We all start out as humiliating sinners. That's not where God leaves us. I want to make this application point clear. We may have a humiliating beginning, but God calls us to Christ-honoring living. We can't go about sinning and just expecting God to work it out. Right? That's not what this story is conveying. Right? Paul picks up this idea in Romans 6. He said, oh, because of God's grace, should we just go on sinning? He says, by no means. Don't forget how the story started. Right? Go right back in verse 7. Right? But Ur, Judas firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then in verse 10, what he, Onan, did was wicked on the side of the Lord and he put him to death also. Same wording, same result of their wickedness. If their wickedness continued, Judah's line was going to be dead. God doesn't want wickedness to continue. He takes our wickedness and our sins seriously. This isn't our ticket to sin all the more, but that God will Never leave us in it as we repent from it. God doesn't command sin. He died for it. He died for us to live and sin no more. This is a reminder that God takes us as rebellious, runaway sinners and doesn't leave us to our own devices of sin. But guess what? We're not done. You ready? Right, the book of Ruth pick up, picks up on this idea of these unique additions into the family line. It's actually what the entire book is about. The theme of the breaching of the line of Perez. He's now a part of the line of King David. That's what Ruth picks up on. You don't have to flip over there, but Ruth 4, 11 through 12 picks up on this idea that, that this story has laid the foundation of God's sovereign grace. It says this in Ruth four eleven: then all the people who are at the gate and the elder says, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by this woman. Perez, by Tamar, has set the stage for this type of way that God is working. The son and the inheritance that Tamar successfully contends for lands her in the line, the royal line of King David. What do you give me? She asks. It's supposed to be Shelah. But instead, God uses Judah's sin and Tamar as an outcast to bring his blessed and chosen line. I hope you're tracking with me. Some of you are already there. It doesn't stop at David. Right? Matthew 1, 1 through C, we see the lineage of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father, it goes on. God's sovereign grace is uniquely revealed in the line of Judah If you're trying to make up a story about some guy claiming to be God, you don't involve all these broken, sinful people. But that's what God does. That's who God is. A sovereign and gracious God. A redeeming God. Bestowing favor on those who don't deserve it. Right, the family tree goes all the way down. He used prostitution, mistakes, and sinful examples to bring about not just, the just a offspring, someone else to carry on the line, but the offspring, the lion of Judah, the lion of Judah, right? The seed, the, the scepter's never gonna part because King Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords is on the throne. He didn't choose the faithful Judah, he or Joseph, he, but the wicked and repented Judah. A humiliating beginning, but a story full of grace And redemption, and that story of grace and redemption can be part of ours too. Second idea of application I want to make sure we understand today is that God's redemptive plan is based on his ability to redeem, not the people who need redeeming. It's true of Judah, and it's true of us today. The line of Judah, the the root of David has come. When he came to earth, he proclaimed that he came to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Your sin isn't hidden from God, it isn't encouraged by him either. He has come through this crazy family line to call all of us sinners to repentance. So, first, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? Have you made Christ? you king. If God has redeemed you, but you still feel stuck in your sin, remember it's not you doing the redeeming. Remember the ability of the one that holds you, that promises to finish the good work that started in you. That's the type of God we follow. That's the type of king we serve. Those of us that have Christ as their king have this unquenchable comfort. And I want to end with this from Revelation. In Revelation 5, we get a picture of this king from the line of King David, from Judah, by Tamar. He's on the throne. Majestic scene, as we sang earlier. In the scene, those in the attendance are weeping because no one was worthy to open the scroll of judgment. And one of the elders says this, says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then we see the response as we sang, right? All around the throne, burst forth in praise saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Let us fall down and worship him too. Will you pray? Oh, sovereign God. You are worthy of all glory, honor, and power. Blessing are yours forevermore. Yet you chose to bless us. You not only came to earth to sacrifice your glorious self, but you did so by including and to include us, broken, sinful, rebellious humans. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our rebellion. Create in us clean hearts. Nothing we bring is of any merit. All your grace is what is sufficient. Receive our worship as thanksgiving and praise from grateful hearts. In your wonderful name we pray these things. Amen.